Okay, I, I'm going to get started. I like to start on time and finish early. Uh, my name is Larry Weiss. I'm on faculty in, in the emergency medicine program. I'm also an attorney, and I actively litigated for more than 10 years. I've litigated MTALA cases. Uh, I had a busy uh, part-time law practice when I was in New Orleans, a charity hospital, while practicing medicine full-time. That's why I look like this. I'm only 39 years old, okay? So uh, I don't litigate anymore. I should uh, state a few disclaimers, which I'll do in a minute. But um, let's get started. Uh, my three objectives are, are for you to understand your duties under MTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And we're going to do this by going through important case law. If I stood here and just read through the statute and all the regulations, you would all be asleep by 1215. So we're going to go through some great cases. These are not esoteric cases. They're the kind of cases that happen every day. And by going through these cases, you will understand your duties under EMTALA, your obligations under EMTALA. We're going to focus on transfers because that's the aspect of EMTALA that involves critical care physicians. So we're gonna spend a lot of our time talking about transfers in detail. Nothing I'm about to tell you constitutes legal advice. The only purpose of this discussion is for continuing medical education. So MTAL is not only a legal issue, it's very much a medical issue. It largely regulates my entire area of practice. And when you get involved in transfers, it's going to be regulating many of the transfers that you accept or decline. And so these issues always come up, and that's why Mike asked me to be here today. He just called and said he's at um, somewhere in Virginia giving a lecture. So he thought he would be here today. It's not, not a problem. Um, so the um, next thing I want to talk to you about is the handout, which I think was distributed to you electronically. It's more than a 30-page handout. It's highly detailed. Uh, the first part of the handout, the first five pages, is an annotated list of these great cases where I've tried to use plain English and not legalese, and it describes the case why the court reached a certain opinion. On page 14, near the top of the handout, I explain to you how you can find all these cases online and print them for free. So if you're interested in any of these cases, you want to read them, you can, they're freely available, they're part of the public domain, and you can read about these cases. Some of the opinions are very long, others are not, and they're pretty easy to understand. Also, I do not represent the hospital. I'm not a member of the Maryland Bar. I'm a member of the Bar in several other jurisdictions. I don't litigate anymore, so I never bothered taking the Maryland Bar exam when I moved here 10 years ago. Uh, I do not represent the hospital, okay? So I'm gonna be going over general rules when you have specific questions regarding individual cases, you, could, you should contact hospital counsel, okay? Even if it's two in the morning, they have someone you can reach and the operator knows how you can reach that person. So the hospital is not my client. I'm not here today speaking on behalf of the hospital. So these are the three major duties described by Amtala the duty to appropriately screen, stabilize, and transfer patients. Screening and stabilization almost always occurs in the emergency department. 
I'm only going to go over one case, one great case that describes the screening and stabilization requirements, and then we'll really focus on transfers. I think it's important to go through this one case so it puts our obligations in perspective and you basically understand the entire, the entire law. So, a patient comes to a hospital emergency department, they shall receive an appropriate medical screening exam, including ancillary services routinely available so that the hospital may diagnose emergency medical conditions. The duty is on the hospital. Plaintiffs may not sue physicians for EMTALA violations. They may only sue hospitals. When you go back and read the congressional record, Congress passed EMTALA in 1986, went into effect in 1987. Congress repeatedly referred to what they called patient dumping. Private hospitals would dump uninsured patients on public hospitals, and patients would often get injured in the interim. They were being transferred for no medical benefit, only because they didn't have insurance. And it was really a huge problem, especially in the Sun Belt, the southern states. This seemed to happen on a very regular basis. So for whatever reason, in the final version of the law, it said that patients who later became plaintiffs could only sue hospitals for EMTALA violations. Now, if someone calls CMS, a whistleblower, and they file a complaint, you know, our hospital violated EMTALA, CMS will send inspectors. They may fine physicians up to $50,000 per case. And by the way, no malpractice policy ever covers that. So CMS may fine physicians as well as hospitals, but patients may only sue hospitals for EMTALA violations. Congress felt that hospitals had more to benefit from patient dumping. I'm not sure that's true in every case. I've been involved at the receiving end of transfers where a physician just didn't want to come in for whatever reason. But this is the way the law is written, and so plaintiffs may only sue hospitals for damages which they allege are due to EMTALA violations. So a patient comes to an emergency department, they receive a medical screening exam, we do not diagnose any emergency medical condition, we're done with EMTALA, everyone's done with EMTALA. A patient comes to an ED, we diagnose an emergency medical condition, they're stable, no further obligations under EMTALA. To use Congress's words, if someone came to the ED, we diagnosed an emergency medical condition, then the patient got dumped, no EMTALA violation. I'll show you a couple cases where that was the precise holding of the court. That sounds unfair to the patient, we're all patient advocates, but EMTALA provides limited remedies. There are loopholes, I think this is the biggest loophole, that EMTALA does not protect stable patients who are then transferred for financial reasons or some other inappropriate reason. The other thing is, even though Congress's intent was to stop financial discrimination in hospital emergency departments, in its final form, it's so broadly written that it prevents all discrimination, which I think is good. I used to receive phone calls in the late 80s and early 90s 
And I know a few of you weren't even born. When I mentioned that, one of my residents reminds me that he or she wasn't even born then. But anyway, I used to get these phone calls in the late 80s and early 90s where someone said, you have to accept this patient because our hospital does not treat AIDS. I would ask him, don't you have a general internist? Don't you have a family practitioner? Don't you have a microbiology lab? There's no reason not to treat AIDS. That's an example of discrimination based on disease. That would clearly be an EMTALA violation. Can't discriminate based on gender, race, ethnicity, any reason at all. EMTALA is not a federal malpractice statute. A negligent exam is not necessarily an inappropriate exam under EMTALA. EMTALA is an anti-discrimination statute. So remember that when we go through the first case. If we diagnose an emergency medical condition, we cannot stabilize the patient. They have to be transferred up to a higher level of care. This is where the long list of transfer criteria under EMTALA apply. Okay, Section C in EMTALA deals with transfers. It only applies to unstable transfers. Doesn't even apply to stable transfers. So here's the first case, Vickers v. Nash, a case heard by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal. Almost every case I'm presenting is heard by a Federal Circuit Court of Appeal one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. So these are cases decided by very high courts, and so they have a huge amount of case precedence. Maryland, by the way, is in the Fourth Circuit. Okay. A young guy gets into a fight, he's highly intoxicated, has blunt head trauma, really a bread and butter case. Cases like that come to our hospital every day, okay? So he's observed in the ED for 11 hours. And if you ask me why, I can't tell you. Most likely because they waited until he sobered. So when you read these court opinions, they almost never provide the kind of detail that you and I would want to read about. They only provide the minimal facts so that an attorney reading the opinion can understand the reasoning of the court. If you ask me whether this emergency physician performed a detailed neuro exam, I couldn't answer that. It's not in the opinion. So after 11 hours, the emergency physician cleans out the scalp laceration, closes it, sends the patient home, and he dies four days later. A guy in his early 20s dies four days later from an epidural hematoma, okay? So the family files a malpractice suit and then adds on an EMTALA complaint. Plaintiff attorneys used to do this routinely until the late 1990s. They didn't all understand that EMTALA is not a federal malpractice statute. Don't worry about the names or numbers of these motions, but this 12B6 dismissal means the lawsuit was filed. Lawsuits are initiated by a document called a complaint. The complaint was received by the court the defense counsel asked for one hearing, and all the EMTALA claims were immediately dismissed, thrown out on their face. Now, why is that? If you read through the complaint, all the plaintiffs alleged was negligence. Negligence has nothing to do with EMTALA, okay? They kept alleging that the emergency physician performed a negligent exam. Well, with regard to EMTALA, that's irrelevant. What they should have alleged was that he performed an exam that was not comparable to similarly situated patients. 
So the single biggest problem with the law is that if they really are stable, MTALA does not apply. There might be other reasons why you want to accept the patient, but you're done with MTALA. Everyone's done with MTALA when the patient really is stable. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time only discussing transfers. I think that's the emphasis that you want because that's when you get involved in these cases. Okay, so this is how you go about transferring or accepting an unstable patient, a case where it's reasonably likely they may deteriorate en route. Well, a referring physician can initiate the transfer of an unstable patient based on patient consent. They don't want to stay there. They want to come here. If someone lacks decision-making capacity, then, the, then a family member can make that decision. I'm coming back here next month to talk about consent, and I'll talk about this issue. So if a patient and or family member gives informed consent for the transfer, they're informed as to the benefits and the risks of transfer, they can be transferred even if they're unstable, okay? Even if the referring hospital can provide definitive care. They don't want to stay there. Another way to initiate the transfer of an unstable patient is if the referring physician signs an oath. It's a legally enforceable oath, a certification. It's not simply signing your name on a form like we do all day long. This is an oath that the medical benefits outweigh the risks. You know, we still deal with occasional financial transfers. This used to occur all the time before MTALA. If the transfer is only being done for financial reasons, then this is false certification because the medical benefits are zero, right? And in a, in a financial transfer. And even if the risks are minimal, that's a bad benefit risk ratio. So the medical benefits have to outweigh the risks. And then the transfer has to be appropriate. So when is the transfer of an unstable patient appropriate? Well, if the referring institution and physician go through these steps, they have stabilized the patient due to their maximum potential. If it's an acute abdomen and they have a general surgeon on staff, that general surgeon should come to the bedside. And if they haven't, they have not evaluated or stabilized the patient to their maximum potential. I mean, I've spent my whole career being told by general surgeons that the acute abdomen is a surgical disease. I think every general surgeon in the whole country should take, be able to take care of an acute abdomen. There might be a few exceptions, but for the most part, this is their bread and butter, okay? So the patient has to be stabilized to the maximum potential of the referring hospital. The receiving hospital has to have an appropriate bed, okay? And you have to have the appropriate personnel to take care of patients. I've gotten phone calls for major burns, okay? We're not a burn center. So it would be inappropriate for us to accept that patient, okay? We don't have an appropriate bed. We don't have a bed in a burn unit, and we don't really have a burn surgeon here. It's one of the very few things we don't do here. I just use that as a, as a, as a clear example. 
whoever is authorized to accept the patient at the receiving hospital has to say yes. Okay, so we must have an appropriate bed, appropriate personnel, and if you're the one in charge of accepting a transfer to your ICU, you have to say yes. Appropriate medical records have to come with the patient, qualified personnel and equipment, and finally, we have a duty to report known violations. And when the regulations were written, we're gonna talk about the difference between a law and a regulation. When the Amtala regulations were finally written in 1994, the Federal Department of Health said, we have 72 hours to report known violations, otherwise we can be fined up to $50,000 per case. With that said, I'm not aware of one single case, and I just published a, a, a paper where we looked at every single Amtala complaint going back decades. I'm not aware of a single case where a receiving hospital was fined because we didn't report a known violation. You know, the real intent of the statute is to, is to stop what Congress called dumping and not to penalize receiving hospitals that go out of their way to help patients. That's really not the emphasis. This is a great case. It's the only case that was decided by a district court or a trial court, uh, but it's a very unique case. It occurred in Mississippi. Guy was working on his car. The engine exploded. I guess it was kind of cool, and he had the door down, and he suffered very significant smoke inhalation. He goes to the local community hospital. They even document that he had soot in his mouth. Okay, they get him accepted at the burn unit. Mississippi only has one burn unit. Used to be in Greenville and now it's in Jackson. It was more than 100 miles away. They send the guy by ground and don't intubate him. What do you think of that? Soot in his mouth, he was tachypnic. They said he was breathing quickly. They send him by ground with two paramedics and he wasn't intubated. Guess what happened en route? Respiratory distress, he was diverted, intubated, survived long enough to make it to the burn unit, and then died. So his family um, files a malpractice suit, also an Amtala complaint. And so the hospital tried to get the Amtala complaints dismissed. So at this motion for summary judgment, before trial, when they want to get it dismissed, the court said that the patient did receive an appropriate medical screening exam. He was at least examined like anyone else with smoke inhalation. They never reached the issue of stabilization. In my opinion, he wasn't stabilized. They diagnosed an emergency medical, medical condition. They should have stabilized him by intubating. So I, I really feel that was an Imtala violation. And the reason they never got to that point, when, when a court is looking at whether or not they should dis dismiss a lawsuit, if they find one reason not to dismiss the lawsuit, they're done. Well, the plaintiff's experts said this patient should have been flown by helicopter because there would have been critical care nurses on board, and that's a far higher level of care than paramedic. These critical care nurses were able to intubate like paramedics, but they were able to otherwise provide you know, critical care. Based on that allegation, uh, the judge did not dismiss the case and made it go to trial. This is the only Amtala opinion. 
where they invoke that requirement that appropriate personnel and equipment have to go with the patient, and this was an unstable patient, and there was a violation by the referring hospital because they did not arrange for the patient to go by helicopter with a critical care nurse. So this can be an issue in unstable transfers. And when I go through the last case, we're going to talk about who's primarily responsible when something goes wrong and root. Is it you or the referring physician? And we have a clear answer to that question, especially in Maryland, because this is a Maryland case that I'm going to present at the end of the hour. So let's talk about some miscellaneous provisions in EMTALA. The first is this reverse dumping provision. That's what Congress called it. Okay, this means that if you're working in a regional referral center, like right here, or you're in a hospital that has specialized capabilities, let's say you get a phone call from a critical access hospital. That's some tiny hospital that basically can just examine people. And you have an ICU here. Okay, that's a specialized capability that the critical access hospital does not have, okay? That's just an example. If you have space, the appropriate personnel, and the referring hospital does not have those capabilities, you must accept all appropriate transfers. And I gave you a list of criteria as to what constitutes an appropriate transfer. It's in your handout. It's in the outline part of the handout. The slides, again, are, repro are reproduced in your handout. <coughs> so you'll, you'll know what constitutes an appropriate transfer. You can't say no. Here's the leading case. A really bad motor vehicle accident in rural Oklahoma. Okay. Um, patients in a bad motor vehicle accident goes to a small hospital. I think the physician there did a great job. He did a really thorough evaluation. He sends the patient for plain x-rays right down the hall. The patient comes back to the emergency department and he notices that the patient is cyanotic from the waist down and has minimal pulses. And the opinions don't give you, again, they don't give you clinical information that is not relevant as far as explaining their decision. I'd like to know what the complications were. It wasn't in the opinion. So this case did not start out as a lawsuit. There was a whistleblower who called and complained about the St. Anthony Hospital. They violated MTALA because they rejected an appropriate transfer. The guy was, had a life-threatening um, injury. And CMS sent their inspectors. They fined the, the surgeon in the hospital. So you can appeal these fines through the Federal Department of Health. There's an administrative law judge who works, I think he works in CMS out here on Security Boulevard. He affirmed the fines, then it goes to, to a departmental appeals board, and then it goes to a federal court of appeals. So a jury never hears fines, okay? So here we are at the 10th Circuit, one step below the US Supreme Court, and they affirmed the fines. They said this was a violation of this so-called reverse dumping provision that there was a duty under the law for this trauma surgeon to say, yes, I'll accept the transfer. In the end, they dropped the fine against the surgeon, and they only fined the hospital 
because they say the it's the hospital's fault because they designated this trauma surgeon as their agent. He was their legal representative, representative in deciding whether or not to accept the transfer. So the hospital ends up with a $50,000 fine. The surgeon gets off. You know, this reflects the fact that uh, the outcome of cases is not always fair. It's a matter of who can ar argue the law, who has the best argument, which attorney can more effectively argue, okay? I don't know if this later led to a malpractice lawsuit or another lawsuit, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it did. <coughs> is, if a, if a hospital calls because, say an ED calls because all the <coughs> ICU beds are full, is that the same as not having it is. So just to repeat that, for the purposes of the law, if the hospital calls you and says, we have no appropriate bed, we cannot admit the patient, then they really don't have access to their ICU at that point in time for their, per for their patient. That also brings up another relevant point. Under MTALA, you are not obligated to accept lateral transfers. Okay, that doesn't come from the law. It comes from a 2008 interpretive guideline. It doesn't have the status of the law, but CMS writes these interpretive guidelines to help their inspectors understand how to execute, carry out the law. It says there's no obligation to accept lateral transfers. Sometimes we get these calls and I'm wondering, why did they call us? The patient has a hip fracture. They have orthopedic surgeons on call. Why are they calling us? You know, what service can we provide that they don't provide? <clears throat> there might be some other reason for the transfer. Maybe the patient doesn't want to stay there. <clears throat> but if there's no other reason for the transfer, um, we do not have an obligation to accept lateral transfers. The last case, the fact that this patient was pregnant is irrelevant. Like if, if you don't take care of OB patients, the holding of the case the holding is the actual decision that um, is the law of the case. It applies to all patients with all illnesses. It affects all of us equally. So don't turn off because uh, this unfortunate patient was pregnant. She was on the Eastern Shore here in Maryland. And by the way, this is not an MTALA case. This is the only opinion I'm presenting that's not an MTALA opinion, but it's so relevant to the whole exercise of accepting transfers, that, it, that it's a case you must know about. She's at the Peninsula Regional Medical Center. And it's okay to mention names. This is part of the public record. And she was basically preeclamptic, edema, proteinuria, hypertension. And they called Hopkins. Hopkins accepted her in transfer. So she went by ground. And when she's somewhere near Easton, she deteriorates. And the opinion doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but she deteriorated. She was diverted to the Easton Memorial Hospital in their emergency department, seen by the OB on call, and they arranged for her to be flown to Hopkins to go by helicopter. She deteriorates en route, and she and the baby unfortunately die. A really tragic, tragic case. So the family files a malpractice lawsuit and they basically sued everyone. Um, the emergency physician at Peninsula, Peninsula Regional, the OB, the hospital, the people at Hopkins, they didn't sue the people in Easton. 
And um, this is one of the best descriptions. It, it's the best description I've ever read from a, from a court opinion on who's responsible when something goes wrong en route. It's kind of a long opinion, but they first describe in detail when a doctor-patient relationship is established. And they said that when you're the receiving physician, you have no doctor-patient relationship until the patient arrives here and you're at the bedside. So ordinarily, the referring physician is responsible for everything that happens en route. Even though you're the intensivist, maybe the referring physician is whatever, general practitioner, they're licensed by the state, they performed the exam, they made the decision to transfer the patient. However, as you begin to take a more active role in the case, you say, do this, do that, don't do this, you know, intubate, get the CAT scan before you send the patient. The more and more you intervene, the more likely that a court will decide, a jury will decide that you created more recommendations, your liability is accumulating. It's just one more thing to register up here, okay? You're creating liability, you're creating risk for yourself, so you might want to balance all these concerns. You're going to be a patient advocate in every case, but you know, often when we're patient advocates, the more and more we do, the more liability we incur. So I want to finish by talking about the 2003 regulations. And you know, whenever you read about So the question is, um, does it make any difference when you say, have you thought about intubating someone? You know what, when you get to court, you can argue that. Um, I would think it does make a difference. But you know, when someone needs to be intubated, like that guy in Mississippi with the smoke inhalation and the soot in his mouth, who took an ambulance ride for 100 miles, I, I just, I would tell them to intubate him. You know, in the end, it's not really CYA, you're a patient advocate. You're going to do everything you can to help the patient. I would err on the side of helping the patient, but you know, I wouldn't go overboard. You go overboard with, you know, do this, do that, put an A-line in the right wrist because I don't like them in the left wrist. And you just, the more and more you recommend, you know, you, you can put a reasonable limit on what you recommend. Now, let's real quickly talk about the difference between a regulation and a law. On the federal level, Congress writes laws, they pass laws, okay? Now, let's take an example. When Congress passed the Medicare Act in 1964, do you think Congress wanted to administer Medicare? Of course not. So they can delegate to a federal agency or department, which is part of the executive branch of government, like President Obama appointed, you know, Secretary of Health, all the other secretaries. That's part of the executive wing of government. So Congress can delegate powers, congressional powers, to the executive wing of government, like the power to administer Medicare went to the Federal Department of Health, okay? MTALA was passed as an amendment to the Medicare Act, so it applies to hospitals that accept Medicare funds. So the Federal Department of Health administers Medicare, 
the administrative office within the Federal Department of Health is CMS. We have an administrator downstairs on the first floor. DHHS has CMS. Have you ever driven out to Security Boulevard? It's bigger than most cities. I mean, it's massive. Okay, that's the administrative office, the Federal Department of Health. They have written all the EMTALA regulations. So regulations are written by federal departments and agencies. As far as you and I are concerned, they have the force of law. Courts are more likely to overturn regulations. Okay. Now, I'm only going to mention the regulations that would affect you in the ICU. Okay, so in 2003, CMS wrote a regulation that said EMTALA does not apply to inpatients. And this settled a long-running controversy in the federal courts, whether or not EMTALA should ever apply to inpatients. In other words, if a hospital admits a patient, they should be done with EMTALA. Almost every court agreed there were exceptions. So if you get a phone call on an inpatient, EMTALA doesn't apply. You'll have a lot of other considerations, but EMTALA does not apply, okay? To make this a little more complicated, the Sixth Circuit heard a case a few years ago where they said CMS exceeded its authority and they shouldn't have written that regulation. So in the area of the Sixth Circuit, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, if you end up practicing there, EMTALA applies to inpatients. So eventually the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to settle this difference in the circuits. The Sixth Circuit has been wrong before about EMTALA. In my opinion, they're wrong again. And I really think that EMTALA should not apply to inpatients. There's an exception even under this regulation. Sometimes hospitals it will admit a patient in bad faith. You're going to be surprised when you hear about things because they don't happen here. There are community hospitals where they admit people in bad faith. EMTALA does not apply to inpatients. You get that phone call, someone's an inpatient somewhere else, you'll have other considerations to go through, but not EMTALA. So it doesn't apply if they're stable, doesn't apply if they're an inpatient. It changed a lot of the rules with regard to on-call physicians. Uh, before, a physician could only be on call at one hospital. Uh, now they can be on call at several different hospitals. However, if that physician is performing elective surgery and they're allowed to now when they're on call, they have to find someone else to be immediately available. What if you're in the ICU and you get busy putting in a central line and it's a really hard stick and it takes an hour and you're not gonna be available to answer the phone for an hour, you need to designate someone else to be immediately available to take the call. That's an EMTALA regulation. So you're allowed to get involved in the procedure you're expected to be there for the key portion of the procedure. And by the way, in Maryland, with our Medicare intermediary, we're now expected to be there for an entire procedure. Otherwise, we can't bill for it. So you're allowed to do that, but if it's going to take an hour, a half an hour, whatever, you have to designate someone else to answer the phone. You have to be available if you're on call to accept transfers. Now. When, you know, when these new regulations are written, CMS gives the public an opportunity to comment, and it looked as if CMS was going to come up with a ratio. In other words, before 2003, if a hospital had a specific specialty on their medical staff, someone always had to be on call. If they had one neurosurgeon, they, that poor person always had to be on call. It changed in November of 2003, and like the general recommendation was to come up with a three to one ratio. That if you had three ENT surgeons on your medical staff, someone always had to 
be on call. If you only had two, there could be days when they're not on call. But CMS surprised everyone. And in the final form, the regulation says that every hospital has to come up with an on-call schedule that reasonably meets the needs of their community. And frankly, a lot of surgical subspecialties took advantage of this regulation because it's vague. And there are many, many hospitals in our community. There's one hospital that has more than a dozen ENTs. No one's ever on call. That's the plan that meets the reasonable expectation of their communities. That's what they're claiming. That's why ever since 2003, we're getting all these calls from a hospital that might have a urologist, might have a plastic surgeon. And I'm not picking on any specialties, but this is where it's happened among surgical subspecialties. No one's ever on call. So we're getting all, the, all these cases. Some of them might wind up in your unit. You wonder, why do they come from elsewhere general? I know they have eight plastic surgeons there. They're never on call. And it's because of this new regulation. This is something new before two, well, 13 years old now. So, okay. And by the way, any kind of ambulance service that's owned and operated by a hospital, they've entered our hospital the second they get on the ambulance for the purposes of MTALA. Okay, so just beware of unstable transfers, but we remember that we are allowed to send unstable transfers. You may want to specify what are the appropriate personnel and equipment that should come with the patient. And these other, the, the other information in this slide really applies to emergency departments. So the take home points, things that bear repetition. Mtala is fulfilled when the patient becomes stable. And yet, a lot of times the referring physicians will tell you 100% of the time the patient's stable because a lot of these physicians think that they're not allowed to transfer unstable patients. And that's wrong. They are allowed to do so. In fact, the Mtala transfer requirements only apply to unstable patients. That, I think that requires repetition. It's that important. You must accept unstable patients who are appropriate. We talked about what makes an unstable patient appropriate. Maximum uh, treatment according to the capabilities of the referring hospital. They are outpatients, not inpatients. You have an available bed and personnel. You should tell them to send appropriate records and talk about the safest means of transporting patients. You run through this list here and you've gone through the major things you need to do to make sure an unstable transfer is transferred in the safest way possible. And then finally remember, as you keep making more and more interventions, telling the referring physician to do more and more and more, you're being a patient advocate. I'm sure in most cases, you're also accumulating risk for yourself. 